0: The scripture reading today is taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 to 11. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time. Most of them are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. This is the word of the Lord.
1: And as you are seated, I want to invite you to pray with me as we turn now to the preached word. God, we come to you and we ask, Lord, that by your grace and by your mercy, you would teach us. Lord, that your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts as we unpack this message Uh, these words that we've just read, that you would minister your grace to us, that we would become um, people who are changed and encouraged and transformed radically by your grace. Father, I pray for those that have not yet received your love and your grace for them personally, that you would um, cause them to receive it, that you would open their hearts wide to, uh, to know how deeply they are loved, how much they need a Savior, and how much you are willing to, to give yourself uh, for them. Lord, we ask that you would uh, help me Would you work and you do use my, um, my weaknesses and uh, all that I am and, and still proclaim the truth of your word, Father, by the power of your Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, at home, uh, we often go to the library and we have young children and we get all the kids books and we read these books together. And some of them are great. Some of them are terrible. Uh, Some of them I'm very unhappy with how often I have to reread them. But I read one recently to my daughter that was new to me and it was called uh, The Very Impatient Caterpillar. And I liked this story. Some of you guys might know the very impatient Caterpillar. And it's interesting because this Caterpillar is learning that he'll become a butterfly, but he's impatient about the process, right? And he wants to get to that transformed state quickly. And he's learning that he's going to have to be in a chrysalis. and It's going to take a long time. And he gets frustrated when he's in the chrysalis. It's taking too long and bursts out prematurely and has to start all over again. But in the end, he does become a butterfly, It's pretty remarkable, really, isn't it? Caterpillar, day one, 14 days later, butterfly. It's profound change. And if I'm honest, it makes me a little bit jealous. Not because I want to be a butterfly, and that's my inward confession to you this morning. It makes me jealous because I want to be changed too. And it's a lot harder than just being quiet in a chrysalis for a couple of weeks. I want to be a better dad. Uh, I want to be a better friend. Uh, many ways I want to want to grow in, in being free from different anxieties and fears that I have in my own life. I want to be a better pastor. I want to be a better friend, a faithful and a loyal friend. But change is hard and change is often slow. I'm wondering if you can relate to me. <laughs> Wouldn't it be nice if change were as simple as entering that chrysalis for a couple of weeks? It's not that easy, is it? And the reality is that on our own, in our journeys of life, as we're going from one state to the next, working our way through things, we all want to try different things to speed that change along. We hope in different things to to make it more effective. We read books. We listen to podcasts. We get really excited about schedules and New Year's resolutions. New disciplines in our lives, that finally, this will be the method that will work to accomplish something significant in my life, a new routine. And if we're young enough, and if we're strong enough, mentally and physically and emotionally, then these things they seem to kind of work for a little while, don't they? But over time, and especially as we encounter suffering in our lives, what change has actually taken place is revealed. And as the years go by, who we really are starts to become evident and what we've accomplished, whether it was good or or bad or insignificant or nothing at all, starts to be shown as the years wear on. This morning I bring all of this up because this is an amazing passage. Because in this passage, God has shown us in the Bible that there is deep and lasting change possible for every single one of us. That by the grace of God, you and I can be remarkably changed for good. This morning, we'll be looking at Paul's words to the Corinthians and we'll be thinking about his story because Paul's story is maybe the most significant testimony of God's grace in the Bible, this beautiful, encouraging story of what God can do in someone's life to change them radically all by his grace. And it's my prayer for us that as we look at Paul's life, as we unpack this text, that we would be encouraged to trust God's grace in our own lives. So we're going to consider two things this morning. First, we'll look at what grace is. And then we'll look at what grace does. So, what grace is and what grace does. So, first, what is grace? Well, grace is simply put, unmerited favor. Maybe you have heard that before, maybe a couple of you have anyway. But unmerited favor is a little bit abstract, and the Bible talks a lot more in relational terms. So, specifically, grace is unmerited favor. In the way that God in his generosity and love is so good to the undeserving. Grace is God's generosity to, to sinners, to those who don't deserve his love and his grace, but, but he pours it out on them anyway because he's such a good God. And the gospel that Paul's been reminding the Corinthians about in the first part of chapter 15 that we've been in, verses 1 to 11, it's all about Grace. The gospel is all about grace. And Paul wants the Corinthians to remember this gospel. He says in verse 1, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand. So grace is unmerited favor. Grace is the generosity of God to those that don't deserve it. The gospel's all about grace. And Paul wants the Corinthians to know that. We need to kind of get that all in line before we move on. But you might be wondering, and we should probably stop right here at You might be wondering, what is the gospel? We've been talking about it a lot, but it never hurts to talk about it more. This is in the gospel, we see the grace of God. So if you don't know what the gospel is, it's very, very simple. This is the gospel. It's good news. It's the good news that Jesus Christ has come to save sinners. That's what the gospel is. And the Bible teaches really clearly that we are all sinners. We don't like to talk about sin. We don't like to admit this to one another or even to ourselves, but this is what the Bible teaches. If you don't know what sin is, sin is just disobedience to the good commands that God has given us. He's a loving God, a good savior, a creator of all. He's given us everything that we have and he desires our good. And we sin when we do the evil things that he's commanded us not to do and rebellion against him. No, thank you, God. I see that you, you want me to live a certain way, but I don't want to follow that. I think I have a better plan than you do. Thank you very much. Right? We've all been there. We've all been there. And we sin and we don't do the good things that he commands us to do. We've been there as well. And we think, well, okay, yeah, loving, forgiving, being generous, doing good, being kind. That's all great, but you know, I'd rather not. Living in relationship with you, no, thank you, God. That's not for me. And we've all sinned. And apart from Jesus, the Bible says that we're even slaves to our sin. That's pretty bad news. We're stuck there living against God in various ways. And I'll stop for a second because I think <clears throat> we hear that and, and we think, well, wait a second, I'm not that bad. <laughs> Look, I'm no Hitler. And the reality is that even though we're all sinners, it is true that none of us maybe have done all the evil that we might have done. Even if Hitler could have kicked his dog a couple more times. And even Hitler, by the way, probably loved his mom, right? The, the, the fact that we're sinners doesn't mean that, that we are, have done all the evil that we might do. And yet we all are really in the state of being a sinner, someone who's rebelled against God. And that's a problem because our sin destroys this world. As we live against God, we, we hurt one another. You've probably been hurt by other people in your life. Right, And your sin in your own life, it hurts the people around you. Right? And this brokenness continues. And actually, even our first parents, Adam and Eve, when they sinned, they brought corruption and death and suffering and sorrow into this world. So really, all the suffering that we experience as human beings is because of sin in the Bible's language. And not only that, but there is a worse consequence to sin still than this. It's the judgment of a holy God against us in our sin. A perfect and just and holy and loving God cannot simply sweep sin under the carpet. But God, praise him, is a God of grace and of mercy. And God gives generously to those who don't deserve it. God loves to rescue sinners from their sin and its consequences. And he did it by sending Jesus Christ, which is what Paul's been talking about in these first 11 verses. He sent Jesus Christ to come to this earth to to die in our place and for our sins so that our sin would be perfectly paid for. His death counts as our death. His blood cleanses us from our sins so that we can stand before God holy and purified and reconciled to God in relationship. Jesus Christ was raised to, to new life by the power of the Holy Spirit. So that we too as we have faith and trust in him we can be made alive by that same power by that same spirit working within us we can start to be freed from sin and made alive to follow god and to obey him to trust him to follow him and that life will continue working in us the day that when jesus returns we're resurrected physically with him we have a hope of resurrection life now in the gospel of jesus christ and all of this is by god's grace all of this is by his Mercy. See, one of the most famous passages in the Bible is all about God's grace. And it's John chapter 3, verses 16 to 17. And there we read, for God so loved the world. A world in sin, in darkness and death. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So what's the gospel? It's good news that God loves sinners. And that God saves them from their sin and its consequences through Jesus Christ. And Paul, the apostle, loved this news. He treasured it. Deeply and personally it blew him away as he reflected that God would save a sinner like him But Paul was moved by God's grace in another way as well Because not only was Paul saved by God's grace like each of us who trust in Jesus are Paul was also appointed by Jesus to become a herald of the good news He was made someone who is is now given this beautiful report about all that Jesus has done and he's been commissioned by God saying, go out there and tell other people. And Paul is sitting there saying, why me? Why would I have such a privileged responsibility to share Jesus Christ in this remarkable way with others? I don't deserve it. Look at verses 3 to 9 and see the way that Paul reflects on his undeservedness to be an apostle for Jesus. He says this, "'For I delivered to you as of the first importance "'what I also received, "'that Christ died for our sins "'in accordance with the scriptures, "'that he was buried, "'that he was raised on the third day "'in accordance with the scriptures, "'that he appeared to Cephas, then to 12, "'then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, "'most of whom are still alive, "'though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles. I'm unworthy to be called an apostle. Why? Because I persecuted the church of God. See, Paul had Jesus appear to him and say, Paul, I want you to be my apostle. And Paul said, I don't deserve it. I don't deserve to, to have that privileged role of telling others about your grace because I don't have the same resume as these other guys, Jesus. Like look, Cephas, by the way, it's Cephas, not Cephas. Although it's really complicated, you know, in our language, but it's Cephas, we'll just say Cephas. Uh, by the way, he's like Cephas, who's also called Peter in the Bible. He's, he's like, this guy, like he was one of your disciples while you lived your earthly life. Not only that, but in the earliest days of the church, he was out there preaching these powerful sermons and being persecuted with your precious and holy people, these new believers in Jesus Christ. I mean, that guy's got a good resume. And James, James is pretty cool too because he's now, after, after Peter's arrested in chapter 12 of the book of Acts we read the history of the early church, uh, then James becomes a leader in the Jerusalem church and is also preaching powerfully and being so faithful to you, Jesus, like he should be an apostle, but then there's me. And compared to those guys, I'm a ghastly tragedy. I'm a tragedy that I can only possibly describe by saying that I am one who was untimely born. Or in Greek, literally, I'm born from trauma. He's saying, I'm a a miscarriage. I'm a stillbirth. He's compared to These natural born apostles, I'm tragically born at the wrong time and in the wrong way. Why? Because I persecuted the church of God. I don't deserve your grace, Jesus. You know, I I think it's remarkable that the Bible has any of Paul's letters in it at all. It's remarkable because when we think about the way that we do history as human beings, if we got a hero, we like to polish them up a little bit, don't we? We whitewash the backstory a little bit, right? And put them in the history book. And then if the if their sin comes out, then we just cancel them. We just cut out the letters, you know? Like, well, those pages that are, that are in scripture from Paul, man, did you know what he did? <laughs> we just cut them out. <laughs> no more Paul in the Bible. But the Bible is... Remarkable because the Bible is so honest about human sin. And in the same Bible where we have Paul's letters, we have recorded by a different author in the book of Acts, a man named Luke, Luke the physician historian. We have the worst moments of Paul's life in the same Bible where we read about the grace of God from Paul's pen. It's remarkable. Look at Acts 7 verses 54 to chapter 8 verse 3. And there, Luke writes about Paul this way. And he starts with a story, and the story is about the very first person who died for their faith in Jesus Christ. Now, when the Jewish leaders heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at Stephen, who's the first martyr. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. They cried out with a loud voice. They stopped their ears. They rushed together at him and they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. So they all pick up stones in a circle. It's mob justice in the ancient world. And they just throw rocks at you till you died. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. That's Saul of Tarsus, who we know as Paul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees he cried out with a loud voice lord do not hold this sin against them when he had said this he fell asleep it's just a euphemism for he died and saul approved of his execution so saul's presiding over the death of stephen and there arose in that day a great persecution against the church in jerusalem and they were all scattered throughout the regions of judea and samaria except the apostles devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and he committed them to prison. I'm unworthy to be an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. And yet despite Paul's sin, God was gracious to him. He blessed him by opening his eyes to see the goodness of Jesus Christ. He blessed him by opening his eyes to see the horror of his sin on the road to Damascus. Look at Acts chapter 9 verses 1 to 5 when Jesus confronts Paul. It starts this way, but Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. By the way, that was what's coming out of his mouth. And Jesus himself said that that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. If he's breeding threats and murder and that's coming out of his mouth and his language and his actions, what was going on in his heart? Something so much worse. And here's Paul and his sin and he asked for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, that's what they called early Christians, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul knows something's going on that's pretty important here. So he says, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. What a moment. What a confrontation. See, on the road to Damascus, Paul's world was flipped upside down. On the road to Damascus, Paul was converted as he was confronted in his sin by the resurrected Jesus Christ. See, up to this point in his life, I think we can fairly assume that Paul was pretty confident about the way that he was going. He maybe knew he wasn't perfect, but he was convinced that this was the way to live. That I am right in my righteousness. I am following God even by killing and imprisoning these Christians. He thought he was serving God, but he wasn't. And Jesus Jesus showed him that when he showed him his sin. When Jesus showed Paul that he needed a savior. You know, I was thinking about the way that that God just confronts us and exposes our sin the other week. I was driving to a wedding, not the wedding we were at yesterday, some of us, a different wedding a few weeks ago in Chilliwack. And as I was driving in my car, Uh, I'm driving along and then it was a really sunny day and and the car that I was looking around and thinking, you know, on the normal dark Vancouver days was probably a pretty clean car. Uh, The light starts streaming in and I'm like, oh my goodness, this car is filthy. My van is dirty, right? The light's just pouring through, brilliant sunny day. And I'm looking at all the surfaces in the car and I'm like, there's fingerprints on everything, (laughs) You know, there's just sticky that the windows have hand smears on them. And like, I know it's not perfectly clean. I mean, I'm a parent and I'm busy and haven't cleaned it in a while, but I didn't know it was that dirty, right? There's stains on the seats. There's dust on everything. There's mud on the, the carpets. Uh, it just goes on and on. But as I as I looked at my dirty van in the bright sunlight, I began to chuckle and I began to, Praise God and thank him. I'm not joking. Like it was this moment that, that God and I had, my family's in the car. I'm like, man, God, thank you. And the reason I was thanking him and I was praising him is because when I looked at my van, I was reminded that my heart's like my van on a dark and rainy Vancouver day. That's how it is. And, and on my own, I, I don't even see what's inside of me. But as the sun poured in, I was reminded that there is a really gracious God who confronts me in my sin. Who shines the light of his word by his Holy Spirit and illuminates what's going on in my life. See, just like the sun, God is like the rays of the sun pouring in, and because He loves me, He speaks to He speaks to me words that are kind but difficult to hear. He says, "Brant, your sin is really wicked. His brand, your sin's not just a little bit bad. It's evil." He exposes me before the light of his holiness and his goodness so that I can start to turn to him to receive him as a savior who can deal with my sin. When that place of exposure, I can now look up and say, okay, God, can you do something about it? And he says, yes. That's my job. That's what I do. I love sinners. I love to redeem them and to make them whole and to forgive them. And God, in his kindness, he uses his Bible. Have you ever found that? Have you ever read the pages of scripture and been convicted of what is reality? He uses his, his word, the Bible. He uses the Bible as it's lived out in our community. He uses his Holy Spirit to take the words on those pages and apply them deeply into our hearts and to convict us of what is true. Grace said, I want you to know that the Holy Spirit is real and that he's working miracles of grace right now in our congregation. That by the power of his word, he is at work still. He's revealing our hearts. Look what Jesus says about the Holy Spirit in John 16, verses 7 to 8. Jesus says, this is what the Holy Spirit will do. I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I'll send him to you. And here's what he does. <laughs> And when the Holy Spirit comes, He will convict. That word is illuminate, like the sunshine. He will illuminate the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Because in the kindness of God, He wants to expose the sin of Paul on the road to Damascus, the sin in my heart, in my van as I'm driving, to show us His mercy, to lead us to receive His love for sinners like you and I. And when our sin is exposed, that's when we realize how badly we need a savior and how good our savior actually is. That's when the cross becomes so much more than a religious symbol, right? Rather than saying, okay, yeah, I know Jesus died. We realize Jesus died for me, for me. God became a human being and lived and suffered and gave his life because it was the only way to save me. And that's grace. That I have been loved when I was dead in my sins and my rebellion against God. God's love is remarkable because God's love is pure grace. See, our love's not pure grace. God loves differently than you and I do. When you love someone, so I've talked to you spouses for a second. When you chose your spouse, uh, I'm sure that there is some element of them being deeply attractive to you that caused you to choose them as your spouse. If that's not true, don't admit it. (laughs) Right, like don't go home and tell your spouse, I learned something at church today. I love a lot like God because I wasn't attracted to you. Don't, don't do that. right? But how many of you chose your, your significant other, your spouse, or even a dear friend because of the benefit that they brought to your life? That's how human love works. It's okay. Right? We do that. But God's love is different because God's love is pure gift. He gives generously to those that can't repay him. You know, the Bible calls us, the church, it calls us the bride of Christ we're the bride of Jesus we're gifted with this incredible privilege of being brought into this intimate relationship with Jesus Christ and one day our marriage will be complete when we're with him forever face to face with God but the remarkable thing is that is that God the father he he didn't hold a cosmic beauty contest when he went searching for Jesus bride just the opposite in fact God picked us when we were ugly and dead in our sin so he could begin fashioning us and forming us and making us beautiful by his grace. So, as Paul was confronted by Jesus, began, uh, Paul began to see his own sin. And he was awed that God would love him he got pretty pumped up about this message. He began preaching the grace that he'd received to everybody who would stop and listen. And even if they wouldn't stop and listen sometimes. And he used himself as an example of what kind of radical love God has for sinners. Look at his words in 1 Timothy 1:12 to 17. Paul says this, I thank him who's given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent of God. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I now realize I am the foremost. Paul meant those words. And they're true for us in the same way that they're true for, for Paul. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life, to the king of the ages. Immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Just as an aside, if you think, if you think that God cannot love, forgive and save you, look at Paul. God forgave him. If God chose his grace to a Paul, he can certainly show his grace and his mercy to you. So what is grace? Grace is God's generous love for sinners. It's a way that he blesses us with this unmerited favor of his salvation and blessing and love through Jesus Christ. But what does grace do? That's a good question. What's the point? Who cares if I have it or if I don't have it? Well, grace changes us. Look at verse 10 to 11 in our second point, what grace does. Paul writes there, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me, whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. First, notice in these verses that when Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am, it isn't some grim statement of resignation. I am what I am. It's not what he's saying. It's a bold, confident assertion of the truth and the hope of the gospel, by the grace of God, I am what I am. God's grace has been working in me and it's doing something incredible and it's all because of him. He writes in verse 10, his grace was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, it wasn't me, but it was that grace that was working within me. See, Paul knew what God's grace did in his life because he knew that once I persecuted the church of God, but now God's grace has come to me and I'm gladly persecuted with the church of Jesus. I'm going to go far and wide. I'm going to do anything in my power to help other people know how good this God is, even if it costs me immense suffering. And when I look at my life, those are different things. And it's the grace of God that's done that in me. To the point that in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four 24 to 28, Paul could give this riveting list of all his experiences of suffering. And you don't just have to take his word for it. You can read about these things in the book of Acts as well, recorded by Luke. But Paul says, it's his own testimony, five times <laughs> I received at the hands of the Jews, the 40 lashes, last one. It was an ancient punishment that basically would kill or almost kill the people who received it. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, in danger from robbers, in danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea. A lot of danger. Danger from false brothers and toil and hardship through many a sleepless night and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is a daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches because he loved them all and he cared about how they were doing. That's a lot of suffering. What possessed Paul to leave his comfortable life as a persecutor to become the persecuted? I think you know the answer by now. Grace. Grace. By the grace of God, I am what I am. It was the love and the mercy of Jesus that he received when he didn't deserve it that coursed through his veins that propelled him outward to love and to suffer and to serve others as Jesus had loved and suffered to serve him. He was changed by God's grace. And in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, he declares, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. That old persecuting sinner is dead. Praise Jesus. But instead, Christ now lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. He loved me, Paul, the persecutor. And he gave his life for me. What more could I do than than to spend my life living for him christy do you want to be changed do you want to be changed do you want to grow as a person do you want to being, do you want to stop being so harsh and judgmental and critical all the time do you want to become merciful Do you want your arrogance to die and and for humility to grow up inside of you? Do you want over the course of your life to become a softer and a gentler and a more beautiful person instead of a hard and bitter person? Do you want to actually begin to really truly care for your friends and your family and your neighbors instead of just doing lip service that you care for them? Do you want to stop opposing God's goodness and just be one completely by him to live a meaningful life, gloriously good that will last. If you want these things then you need grace, Paul wasn't changed by a new method. Paul wasn't changed by some better self understanding cause he read a book that broke the code. He wasn't changed by a better schedule. He wasn't changed by crazy disciplines that he enacted in his life. He was changed by grace. And this grace was effective in Paul's life. It was so effective. He had religious zeal before, but he didn't accomplish very much with his life. He just opposed the goodness of God that he was doing in the world. But when he was changed by Grace, it changed him to become this person that God used to affect change in the lives of countless others. To the point that it's no exaggeration to say, and historians will recognize this, especially when they're being honest, that God used Paul to change the shape of the ancient world. It wasn't a world that we'd recognize today, it wasn't a world that cared for the vulnerable and the oppressed. But because of this message that Paul preached and lived, it spread like wildfire and change began to take place in a broken and a dead ancient world to the point that one of the ancient emperors named Julian, who's called now in history, Julian, the apostate He's known by that, by that name. Don't ever become named Julian, the apostate for, for, for the memory of progeny. That's a terrible way to go down. Um, but, but in one of Julian's letters, Emperor Julian's letters, he noticed what was happening in his own kingdom because of Christ, because of the message that Paul preached. It's so a Roman empire and he says this, the Christian faith has been specially advanced to the loving service rendered to strangers, those who don't deserve it, those who could not repay just like God shows love and grace to us, right? It's nothing more gracious and loving for you to do than to love those that can't repay you. And in your life, love those who don't deserve it as well. But he's recognizing the loving service rendered to strangers by these Christians and through their care for the burial of the dead. It is a scandal that there is not a single Jew who's a beggar. (laughs) And that the godless Galileans, that's the Christians, call them godless because they thought they were atheists back in those days. The godless Galileans care not only for their own poor, but they even care for our poor. Well, those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render to them and we don't give. This is a problem. In his eyes, it was a problem. In Paul's eyes, it's just what God does by grace. He changes things for the better. Because as Paul and the early Christians received this grace, it changed them and with tears in their eyes and joy in their hearts, they lived differently. They reflected, if God would die for me, If God would love me like this, how could I not generously love the undeserving, the outcast, the orphan, the stranger, and welcome them into my home and care for them? And they were changed by grace. There are few lives in the history of the world that had a greater effect than Paul's life. And yet, Paul doesn't credit that change to a better work ethic. He credits God's grace. Look at John fifty, or look at this passage again. Uh, 1 Corinthians fifteen, verse ten. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was working in me. So Christ did he. As we conclude, I just want to ask this question. What's working in your life? What's forming you right now? Is it grace? Or is it something else? You see, receiving God's love and goodness, it starts with repentance because... No one is transformed by grace who thinks they don't need it. And I think one of the first things we can do if we want to be changed by grace, it's to stop. It's to confess our sins before a holy and a loving God. It's to cry out in the words of 1 John 1, verse 9: that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And it's to come to Him and to tell Him: look. I'm tired of fighting you. I'm letting the light of your word by your Holy Spirit shine on my life and I'm going to turn to you as my savior. And if you're wondering, how how can I grow in this grace in in an ongoing way? There are things that you can do because you know where God's grace is most powerfully at work? It's in his church. It's in a community of people living together under the Word of God as we seek to, to open the Bible to understand more of the ways that God loves us. To open the Bible to understand how reality actually works. Psalm 36, verse 9 says, In your light, do we see light? It's coming together in this place to be shaped by the words of Scripture? To see who we really are and how we can grow, and also to, in that place be reminded again and again and again of the rich love. Of Jesus so can I encourage you confess your sin give yourself to reading the Bible join this community live together the love of Christ with us so we're all shaped by the grace of God would you pray with me God we come to you and we ask that you would do a work of grace in our lives even today Lord your grace is slow and steady Lord, it's at work right now in this church, and we ask that this would just be another Sunday by which you are shaping your church by your grace. Lord, we pray that that we would be repenting of our sin, trusting in Jesus, coming to know more than ever how much he loves us and how good he really is. God, I pray that you'd be breathing life into us so it would be changed and shaped by Jesus. We want to live lives that matter. We want our lives to have purpose and meaning. and We just pray that you would do that by a work of your grace in us. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.